Hello, I'm Oliver Colling, and this is my 70s TV childhood. Hello again, and welcome back to My 70s TV Childhood, the podcast which relives growing up as a child in 1970s Britain and the part that TV played in shaping our lives. As always, welcome back to our returning listeners, and a special welcome to you if you haven't listened before. And to all of you, thanks for listening. To make sure you don't miss an episode, or if there are any you want to catch up on, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Music. Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and lots of other great podcast sources. You can also share your thoughts on the show by visiting our blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com, tweet at 70stvchildhood, or email me, oliver at my70stvchildhood.com. I don't know about you, but I've always enjoyed a good quiz. I've got the sort of mind that takes in and stores lots of information, which doesn't serve much practical purpose, but is invaluable in a general knowledge quiz. I suspect I'm not alone, and that many of our listeners are the same. The counter to that is that I do sometimes forget important things. I suspect I'm probably not the only man in Britain who can remember every line from Blackadder, but then can't remember what I've gone to buy in the supermarket. That also might be due to my advancing years, but I still find my mind is pretty sharp when it comes to remembering trivial facts. And today, there's no shortage of places to test your brain power. One pleasing ritual that's developed over the last 12 months of intermittent lockdowns in the UK is that my wife and I tackle the Times newspaper's daily quiz, set by multiple world quizzer of the year, Olaf Bjorntomt. This is particularly satisfying because we never get all of the answers correct, so it remains a compulsive challenge. We managed to get 14 out of 15 questions right on one or maybe two occasions, but normally there are at least a couple that trip us up. There's also no shortage of quiz shows on television, and we even have whole channels devoted to game shows. I've got the newspaper with me today, and one look at today's TV schedules tells me Right, I could watch Impossible on BBC One at 1.45 before settling down to several hours of continuous quizzing on ITV with Warwick Davis's Tenable, followed by Tipping Point with the affable Ben Shepherd. Now, for those of you who haven't been lucky enough to see Tipping Point, it's basically a giant version of the seaside amusement arcade game where you feed in your two pence pieces in the hope of causing other coins to be pushed down a couple of ledges before dropping out of the tray and drop into the tray underneath. This somehow manages to go on for an hour before Bradley Walsh takes over with the chase, which has it all a team of greedy contestants and a professional quizzer or the chaser looking to ruthlessly expose their failings in a general knowledge quiz. Ah, but here I now face a dilemma as the BBC's pointless is on at 5.15. So unless I record one of them, I'm going to miss out. Pointless, and its appropriately named weekend version, Pointless Celebrities, 
give the chance to pairs of smart alecks to prove they know more trivial facts than the other contestants, as, in this one, the lowest scoring answers win. The urbane Alexander Armstrong lets down the failed contestants very nicely, whilst Richard Osman looks after the answers. At 6pm on BBC Two, we have Osman again, in Richard Osman's House of Games. Well, another lot of people playing games, really. That 6pm slot is also the traditional home of what I think is the smuggest quiz on TV, Eggheads, where the eccentric panel of quiz experts take delight in humiliating hapless teams of friends and work colleagues who dare to take them on. After a quick break for tea, we've then got Jeremy Clarkson hosting Who Wants to Be a Millionaire on ITV. Now, that is the big daddy of quiz shows, where you can literally win a million pounds, and a number of people have. That's really life-changing sums of money up for grabs, for answering a few general knowledge questions. But I wonder... Has it always been like that? Now, you won't be surprised if you're a regular listener, but not for the first time. It really wasn't like that in the 1970s. In fact, the chances of winning life-changing amounts on a game show were nil. And this is why. Big money game shows came, like many other televised innovations, from the US, where after the Second World War, TV networks and advertisers wanted to find bigger, and better ways of tapping into the unprecedented affluence which Americans enjoyed post-war. TV provided a great chance to do this, and the advent of the game show, often based on general knowledge questions and answers, was driven by this imperative. A whole host of big-money shows sprang up, and ordinary Americans became famous overnight as they defied the odds and won large amounts of cash. Unfortunately, This also led networks and advertisers to look at how they might manipulate the contestants and the shows to get the best ratings, and a number of scandals were uncovered where, in effect, the networks cheated. The most famous of these, the 21 scandal, is memorably documented in the 1994 film Quiz Show, where a contestant was asked questions which the show's producer knew that they knew the answers to. So it seems that cheating in game shows has been around a long, long time, and long before Who Wants to Be a Millionaire's coffee major emerged. As a result, in this country, the Independent Broadcasting Authority, which regulated ITV channels, decreed that no prizes above a value of £1,000 could be awarded. Of course, at this point, the BBC didn't deign to have anything so vulgar as quiz shows where contestants could win money. And that set the tone for what we then enjoyed in the UK for the next 20 years or so, until restrictions on prize money began to be eased during the 1980s. That meant that during my 70s TV childhood, all of the prizes available on game shows were pretty unexciting. But for a small child with an interest in general knowledge and quizzes, this didn't make much of a difference. I loved game shows and the opportunity to test myself against the contestants, however banal the subject matter. I'm going to take you back in time now and remind you of some of the ones I remember best. The first show I remember well was The Golden Shot with Bob Monkhouse. My memories are a bit sketchy, to be honest, but from what I do remember, contestants came on and spoke to Bob live on the telephone, answering questions with a view to getting the chance to take a chance on securing prizes by hitting targets with a crossbow bolt fired as a stage set. The crossbow was operated by... Bernie the Bolt, 
who I think in effect was a blindfolded cameraman. Well, and yes, and they were all men at this point. The contestants shouted instructions down the phone line. Left a bit, right a bit, up a bit, down a bit, and then fire once they thought they'd got the target in sight. I seem to remember most contestants missed. And then the climax of the show was where one contestant got the chance to take the golden shot, where they had to fire at a treasure chest. Only this time, when Bernie the Bolt moved in whatever direction commanded, the crossbow sight moved more quickly. Because of this, I hardly ever remember anyone actually hitting the treasure chest, but when they did, the chest burst open and gold coins poured onto the floor as Bob waxed lyrical about how well the contestants had done. The prize was a 100 guineas, whatever that was, and rose weekly until it got to the maximum prize of 900 guineas. For me, it didn't matter. The tension and excitement as a viewer in Leicester shouted left a bit, right a bit, at a blindfolded cameraman who was in ATV's Birmingham studios was what made the show for a five-year-old. I also remember that things often went wrong during the show, so even more amusing for a small child. Bob Monkhouse, the host of The Golden Shot, was the ultimate in professional game show hosting. If there had been a Game Show Hosts Host Award, he would have won it every time. However, even he wasn't immune from game show-related scandal and was fired from the golden shot for alleged collusion with the provider of prizes. ATV replaced him with Norman Vaughan and then with Charlie Williams, but neither of them could compare to the old smoothie himself, and Bob was restored to the show less than a year later. ATV, which was the ITV network operator for the Midlands, developed a new game show for Bob Monkhouse, based on the long-running US show Hollywood Squares. One of these celebrities is sitting in the secret square and the contestant who picks it first could win all the fun of the fur. Which celebrity is it? Is it Magnus Pike? Patsy Rollins? Terry Wogan? Arthur Mullard, John Conti, Roy Hudd, John England, or Willie Rushton, all joining Bob in the big box game, Celebrity Squares. And here he is, the star master of celebs, the big square himself, Bob Monkhouse. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Nearly the late Bob Monkhouse. Welcome to TV's equivalent. To the Spanish Inquisition. It's tremendous fun to watch, but it's agony when you're in it. This was a massive step up for British TV at the time. ATV had built a giant version of a noughts and crosses board for the show, rumoured to have cost £12,000, equivalent to about £100,000 today, and they filled every square with a well-known celebrity. There were some regulars like Willie Rushton and Pat Coombs, but the great and the good of British TV all popped up in one of the squares over many years. For a child, it was bold, exciting, and genuinely funny. Good family entertainment, which owed most of its success to the skills of Bob Monkhouse, the ultimate professional. The prizes were still reasonably small, but I think I remember contestants could win up to £100 on the show before deciding whether to risk all they had and go for the big money prize of £1,000. Yes, £1,000, 
which was brought onto the set by a burly security guard who opened a briefcase handcuffed to his arm to show the money whilst a contestant made up their mind. In typically British fashion, most of the contestants bottled it, saying, well, I've had a lovely day, Bob, and, you know, £100 is a lot of money, etc., etc., etc. On the odd occasion that someone dared to go for the big prize, I seem to remember they rarely won. But, but that wasn't the point. Seeing £1,000 of real money live on screen was the main climax of the show. Bob Monkhouse went on to host lots more quiz shows over the following decades, but one of the most unlikely and most fondly remembered TV game show hosts is best remembered for one TV show which helped make a city in East Anglia the focus of attention every Friday night. It's the quiz of the week. Nicholas Parsons was the antithesis of the bold, brash. US game show host. Charming, urbane, always immaculately dressed in what was probably a Savile Row blazer and a silk tie, he seemed more likely to be sitting in a chair in a London Pall Mall club than standing at his rostrum asking questions in a game show. But the unique nature of his personality, combined with the lowish production values, background organ music, and the frankly embarrassing set of prizes on offer, made Sale of the Century one of the biggest quiz shows on TV during the 1970s. Indeed, it regularly pulled in audiences in the teens of millions and holds the record still for the highest TV audience for a game show of over 21 million viewers. I, and many others of my generation, remember it fondly, but looking back now, I, I do have to ask myself why. The format was, like many others, borrowed from a North American game show. The whole concept was that contestants answered general knowledge questions to earn money in £1 increments, which they could then spend on items presented to them in The Sale of the Century, as referred to in the title. So you're with me so far. During the questions, every now and again, Nicholas would announce, and here's John Benson with an instant sale. And to the accompaniment of organ music, a curtain would open and the announcer, John Benson, would give details of some item which the contestants could use their pounds to buy, like a coffee percolator or a set of kitchen bowls. And the first one to buzz got the deal for four pounds or however much it cost. Now, I know you're thinking I'm making this up again, but that was more or less the whole game. The contestants would be asked dozens of questions at a blistering rate by Nicholas Parsons, who would be almost tearfully apologetic if a contestant gave a wrong answer, and say how sorry he was, but I'm afraid it wasn't right. At the end of the show, the contestant with the most points, stroke pounds, got to shop in the sale, and normally there was a car like a small larder on offer, together with a Spanish holiday or a new dining suite. However, I do remember that the car was hardly ever won, because you needed to have a ridiculous amount of points, stroke pounds, to afford it, which very few, if any, contestants ever did. This didn't stop Nicholas describing the car or whatever it was in gushing detail, while the grimacing contestant had to make do with a week in the Costa del Sol instead. 
Sounds awful, but it was great at the time. It also made me look at where Norwich was on the map. And when we went there on a family holiday, I think I spent several days spouting, and now, from Norwich, it's the Quiz of the Week. I also remember that the sale of the century alternated with a quiz called Winner Takes All in the early Friday night quiz slot. Now, that show was hosted by Liverpudlian comedian Jimmy Tarbuck, and every question came with betting odds attached, which were read out by Geoffrey Wheeler, and contestants gambled their money against their answer. Can you imagine that being commissioned today? Now, let's think about it. Will it be the even money shot? Not blinking likely. Or maybe the two-to-one shot? Possibly. Or will you take the outside ten-to-one shot? Absolute certainty. The other shows I remember include The Sky's the Limit with Huey Green. Well, when I say I remember it well, I I don't remember it much other than the contestants used to have to go into a soundproof booth and put on headphones to answer questions, which has always looked extremely exciting. Ask the Family with Robert Robinson was always a good one to watch, although I was always slightly jealous of the families who managed to get on there. I once asked my father whether we could go on it, and he looked at me raised an eyebrow and simply responded, I don't think so, before going back to reading the paper. Robert Robinson was also the host of Call My Bluff, which I enjoyed from an early age and into my teens. The two team captains, Frank Muir and Patrick Campbell, seemed so witty and erudite, and, as a reasonably young child, I naively wondered how they could know so many difficult words. There were also lots of famous guests on the teams too, And I remember one of them, the actor Nigel Davenport, spending each episode he was on the show chain-smoking and stubbing out cigarettes in an ashtray before lighting another one. Did that really happen, even back then, or did I dream that bit? There were all sorts of other quiz shows, especially on ITV. The recently departed Derek Beatty became a cult figure as the host of Border TV's Mr and Mrs., The show was based on the premise of married couples each answering the same questions and then having to guess what the other had answered. Doesn't sound that inspired, does it? But Derek treated the contestants so kindly and almost lovingly that he made it feel like eating comfort food. Added to which, most of the contestants were quite elderly, so his soft approach worked perfectly. Now, Gladys, you and your husband go into a cafe and have a cup of tea. Now, Would Wilf have a biscuit with his tea? Or would he have a cake? Or would he not have anything at all? Based on how many of these questions they got right, the contestants could win vast fortunes up to around £20, and the really successful ones also got to take home a carriage clock. Yes, that familiar 1970s symbol of silver weddings and retirements, the carriage clock, to go and sit on their mantelpiece. Eat your heart out, Jeremy Clarkson. You don't need millions to create a compelling game show. Let's also not forget that there were plenty of quizzes and game shows aimed specifically at children in the 1970s. The first one I remember was devised and presented by Geoffrey Wheeler, as mentioned earlier, 
as in Winner Takes All. Top of the form was an early memory for me. Teams of earnest school pupils fought to outdo each other's general knowledge, and I listened and learned from those contestants as a great way to increase my own knowledge of the world, and I still have an edition of the Top of the Form quiz book. The whole show was very formal, and looking back, might have seemed better at home in the 1950s rather than the 1970s, but it was entertaining and educational, so that can't have been bad. Screen test was another fairly simple idea. It involved two teams of children watching a film clip and then answering observational questions on the clips posed by Michael Rodd, the suave quizmaster, who was also one of the hosts of the BBC's Tomorrow's World, which showed us the future today. A great plus of screen test was that it used clips from popular children's films, so it was always entertaining, as well as introducing us to the Children's Film Foundation, which produced many British films for children in the 1970s. However, as the decade wore on, some more stranger game shows for children began to appear. The most bizarre was Runaround, where groups of young children were basically shouted at by the comedian Mike Reed, later to play Frank Butcher in EastEnders, as they ran to a circle marked A, B or C, determined by what they thought the answer to a question was. It was pretty frightening, and the whole runaround concept allowed hapless kids to change their answers if they thought they'd made a mistake by running to a different box when Frank said, All right, kids, run around now! If they got it right, they got a sponge ball to put in a tube, and if they got it wrong, Frank shouted at them again and sent them to the dungeon. All in all, very strange. As the 70s began to run towards the 1980s, Game shows based on answering general knowledge questions fell out of favour and were replaced by ones which were more activity-based and I suppose less elitist. The elitism represented by Top of the Form was replaced by the cheery collective effort which was shown to its best or perhaps should be the worst effect when combined with guest pop groups and Keith Chegwin in 1978. Sorry, Keith, but in spite of your cheery scouse enthusiasm, Chegger's Place Pop was never one for me. Never mind. Blockbusters and University Challenge were waiting in the wings for quiz enthusiasts as we grew into teenagers in the 1980s. Well, that's it for another episode. I hope I brought back some happy game show memories for you. Let me know at www.my70stvchildhood.com Tweet at 70s TV Childhood or email me oliver at my70stvchildhood.com.
Take care and join me again soon for more from my 70s TV childhood.